This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. At 11.10 p.m. on August 3rd, 2016, a badly injured woman called 112, the Swedish emergency number. She woke up and saw a man sitting on top of her husband in bed, stabbing him. When the perpetrator realized that she was awake, he started stabbing her as well. She was probably unconscious for a while, but when she came to, she called the emergency services to get help. She was badly wounded and hadn't yet realized that her husband was already dead. Ambulance and police were sent to the beautiful summer cabin in Grandiden, outside the city of Arboga in the middle of Sweden. This was the beginning of what would become one of Sweden's most infamous murder cases. Hi, and welcome to episode 37 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. The disclaimer that you hear in the beginning is read by Tyler Allen from the Minds of Madness podcast, and the music is by Nico from We Talk of Dreams. This is part three in a three-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one and two, Go back and listen to those first. Before we get into the story, I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's a podcast that I really, really love myself. It's called Pretend. I can especially recommend the series on prank calls. You are not going to believe what some people can actually do to other people. But let's hear it from the host, Javier himself. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money, me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he, just, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members 
anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Javier. And now, over to the story. When we left off in part two, Johanna's mother and father had just been attacked in their summer cabin, Granliden. They were asleep when a man came into the bedroom and first started stabbing Johanna's father, Göran, and then her mother, Anki. And now we are going to get into how this awful experience was to Johanna's mother, Anki. This is what Anki Möller later told the investigators. She had woken up very abruptly by someone elbowing her in the back. She assumed it was Göran who was trying to get her to stop snoring. He would sometimes do that. But she quickly realized that something was wrong and she sat up to get a grasp of the situation. The bedroom was completely dark, but she could definitely see a man-shaped figure on top of her husband, swinging his arm back and forth. In a state of confusion, after just waking up, Anki said, Jaran, what are you doing? But there was no answer. The next thing she remembered was this figure coming after her, and then she passed out. She can't tell how long she was out, but after some time she woke up again and she couldn't see a thing. Anki put her hands over her face, and it was completely wet. While still blinded by the blood, she felt her way around the bed and felt Göran still lying next to her. This comforted her, and she leaned back on her pillow again, completely exhausted. She lay there while her mind was racing. She couldn't wrap her head around this. Why was the bed wet? Why couldn't she see properly? What had happened? There were so many questions, but no answers. Anki stayed in bed a little longer. She doesn't know for how long, but eventually she decided to get up to seek some answers. She walked to the bathroom, wiped her eyes clean from the blood, and looked herself in the mirror. One of her teeth was loose, and she took it out and placed it on the sink. Still very confused and soaked in blood, she walked downstairs and picked up her cell phone. The first call she made was to her oldest daughter, Ulrika, but she hung up before anyone answered. The second call was to Göran's phone, and then finally she dialed 112 at 11.09 p.m. This is a transcript of that call. Operator, 112, what is your emergency? Anki, well, hello. Yes, my name is Anki Möller. Operator. Hello? Anki, coughing loudly. Yes, I am calling from <coughs> Granliden in Arboga. Operator. Okay. Anki. I am severely hurt and my husband is dead in our bed. Operator. 
What happened? Anki. I don't know. I am bleeding. Anki again. They... You must come here immediately. Operator. Granliden in Arboga. Is that right? Anki. Yes, that is correct. Operator. Okay, let's see. You need an ambulance and perhaps the police. Anki. No, just an ambulance. Quickly. Operator. Yes, but I mean, if he's dead. Anki. But I'm bleeding. Someone came into our house and did this to us. Operator. Okay. Anki. Yes, I am... I am soaking in blood. All of me is soaking wet. Operator. All right, I will connect you to the police. Hold on. Anki. Hey, you, I can't. I don't have the strength. Operator. It's okay. You need to speak to the police. Hold on. And a police officer is connected on the line. Police officer. Yes, this is the police speaking. Anki. Yes, uh, yes. Coughing. I am dying. Police officer. What has happened? Anki. I don't know. Well, yes, I have, uh, yes. And she's coughing. Yes, I am all bloody. Police officer. Yes. Anki. And I have cuts everywhere. Police officer. Okay. Anki. And I think my husband is lying dead in bed. I think so, because I think he has... Someone was here and... Police officer. All right. Anki. Heard us. And then the police ask Anki for her address again, trying to understand where Granliden is at. Both the operator and the police stayed on the line, trying to keep Anki conscious. The first police officers to arrive at the scene were Erik Oskarsson and Fredrik Hansson. They arrived before the paramedics and began by securing the premises. Fredrik, one of the police officers, later wrote in his statement, We parked the car about 150 meters, that's about 150 yards, from the building and walked the last distance. We looked through one of the windows on the first floor and saw a woman completely covered in blood. She was sitting in a chair, talking on the phone. My colleague and I entered the house and looked through all the rooms without finding anyone else but the woman. We continued up the stairs and found a man lying in bed, looking like he was deceased. No suspects were found on the second floor either. So we went back downstairs and I took out my first aid kit from my leg pocket. I looked at the woman and I could see that she had a deep cut to the left of her chest. There was also a five centimeter wide hole in her left cheek where I could see the inside of her mouth. Both wounds looked like they were caused by a sharp knife. The officer also reported that he noticed five to six smaller wounds on her right arm. All in all, he saw at least ten wounds on her body, 
The woman was clearly in shock, but did not smell of alcohol, he stated in his report. Anki was rushed to the hospital where she underwent surgery for four hours. In the ambulance, she was asked about possible suspects, and the only one she could imagine doing something like this was her youngest daughter, Johanna. She told the paramedics how they were not on good terms, and that her daughter was quite a character. Anki had to have 68 stitches to mend the 24 stab wounds she had got from Mohammed and she was given two bags of blood because of the blood loss she suffered. Anki had to stay in the hospital for a week before she was discharged. The police first suspected her of killing Yadam, but it didn't take long for them to assess the situation and understand that someone else was involved. Anki was taken to a hotel in Linköping, another town close by where she was joined by her oldest daughter, Ulrika, and her family. After staying at different hotels in months following the tragedy, they moved out of Sweden for a period of time, partly to get away from the media attention, but also because of the threat she was under. They still didn't know who attacked her and her husband. In the early hours of August 4th, The day after the brutal attack, a police officer named Martin Gunnarsson knocked on Johanna Möller's door in Eskilstuna to tell her the news about her parents. They sat down at the kitchen table, and Johanna didn't say anything when the police told her about her parents. A tear rolled down her cheek, but she didn't ask any questions. This struck the officer as a little odd, since he had just been at the house of Johanna's older sister, Ulrika's. Ulrika had a completely different response. She had a very strong reaction, having trouble grasping the information. She kept saying how it was unbelievable, wanting to know again and again what had happened. She asked if they could take her to the hospital to see her mother but the officer said that she was still in surgery. Johanna was just quiet and said nothing. And I do want to mention that it is normal that people react differently to difficult news. But the lack of questions from Johanna raised a red flag with the officer. Johanna and Mohammed stayed in the apartment for the remainder of that day. At around 8 p.m., the police came back to get a statement from Johanna. She was crying while telling them that she knew nothing about the murder and the assault. But when the officers left the apartment, something creepy happened according to Mohammed's testimony later in the investigation. As soon as the officers were out of the apartment... Johanna started laughing and asked Mohammed if he believed she could win an Oscar for the performance she put up in front of the officers.
Johanna kept on with her life as the days went by. On August 14th, ten days after the murder, she took Mohammed and the twins to Stockholm in her car. They checked into a hotel in the city. Supposedly, Johanna had booked a trip to Thailand with her two oldest children and the twins, and she wanted to spend some time with Mohammed before she left. Two days later, on August 16th, Johanna gave Mohammed 4,000 Swedish kronor, that's about $400, and told him to drop her and the twins off at the Arlanda airport and continue to drive to Östersund, a city in the northwest of Sweden. But before Johanna could go through security at the airport, the police arrested her. They also had a police car follow Mohammed, and they stopped him before he reached his destination. Both Johanna and Mohammed were taken into custody. The charge was the murder of Johanna's father, Göran, and the attempted murder of Johanna's mother, Anki. What Johanna didn't know at this time was that the police had 25 officers assigned to the case from the very start. They were working tirelessly to find the killer. And as soon as Anki was written off as a suspect, they turned their attention to her youngest daughter, Johanna. After all, she had been named as a possible killer by her own mother. Johanna and Mohammed denied having anything to do with Jörans murder. The prosecutor couldn't hold them for more than three days without more proof, so they were set free on August 19th. They probably wouldn't have been arrested until the DA had more evidence against them, but the police had to act because the fact that Johanna was about to leave the country. Before they released them, the police installed a listening device and a GPS in Johanna's car and in her apartment, listening to everything they said to each other after the release. One transcript from a car ride afterwards says this. Johanna, we have to deny having anything to do with this. Do you understand me? As soon as we are married, we can go overseas. They might have put a tracker in the car, you see, a transmitter. They could be watching us. Not fun. They know where we are. Mohammed, yes? Johanna, this is serious, you know. It's murder. Mohammed, laughing. Johanna, do you understand me? Mohammed, yes. Johanna, I don't want to be convicted of murder or as an accessory to murder, spend ten years in jail. Do you understand me? Accessory to murder? No thanks. Many of these recordings are very incriminating to Johanna. She says things that an innocent person really wouldn't be saying, and at the same time, she acts like she's on the top of the world, like no one can touch her, not even the police. She laughs at how they think of them as suspects, like there's no way that the police can pin this on them. It's really hard to make any sense of her reactions. When listening, 
you hear a person completely without empathy who also believes she is untouchable. Johanna also talked to the media a lot during this time. She would go on any news outlet that asked for her opinion, and always stating what a victim she was in all of this, how her father had been killed, and the fact that the police was reading on social media about her, and then decided that she was the murderer. She played the role of the innocent victim so good that she probably believed it herself. Joanna still had her mind set on going to Thailand, despite her father being killed and herself recently being arrested for the crime. Her reasoning was that she really needed and deserved a nice vacation. So they took off towards Stockholm one more time, and this time she said to Mohammed that he should go to Norway, while she flew to Thailand with her children. She had bought them both new phones to make sure they were not being tapped. Johanna got on the plane and Mohammed drove off, but he ran into some problems when he arrived in Norway. For some unknown reason, he was pulled over by the police and he didn't have the right paperwork to be in the country. So they had him arrested and in custody for two days. They then released him and told him that he had to leave Norway within 15 days. Mohammed didn't know what to do next, so he called Johanna in Thailand and asked her for advice. Johanna was having a great time in the sun, without a worry in the world. Other guests at the hotel recognized her as the Johanna Möller, the Arboga woman from the newspapers and they took pictures of her smiling and laughing in the pool area. Anyway, Mohammed asked her for help, and she booked a hotel room for him in a Norwegian town called Trondheim. As soon as she got back to Sweden, she would join him there, and they would start their new life together in Norway. At least, that was what she told him. What Johanna didn't know while she was in Thailand was the fact that the police had done an investigation of her car, the Volkswagen, and they found Jörans blood on the inside of the left door in the car. They had also found Mohammed's DNA underneath one of Jörans' fingernails. They put out an international warrant for their arrest, and when Johanna arrived at the hotel in Trondheim, Norway, they had them both arrested again. It was now August 30th, 2016, almost a month after the attack. Initially, Mohammed told the police that he had committed the murder on behalf of a man called Ali. This man had threatened to kill Mohammed unless he killed Yaran and Anki. Johanna denied having anything at all to do with any of this. But right about the same time as Johanna was arrested, the insurance company had finished their investigation of the death of her husband, Aki Pasela. You remember how Johanna had called them four days after Aki Pasela's death and asked them for the life insurance money to be paid out. 
This, of course, raised a lot of suspicion at the insurance company named If. And what a great name for an insurance company, right? Well, the investigator in charge at the insurance company If, a former police investigator named Anders Lindstrand, immediately realized that there was something fishy about Aki's drowning. And if started their own investigation into Aki Pasila's death, since the police had closed the case and deemed it an accident. The insurance company talked to many people in Aki's life, one of them being his ex-wife, and they found several suspicious things during their investigation. They could conclude that A. Aki was not aware of the life insurance. It had been purchased by Johanna from an IP address that could be tracked to Eskilstuna. At the same time as multiple witnesses stated that Aki was in Stockholm for work, which made the life insurance invalid and no money would be paid out. And B. The water in which Aki supposedly drowned was too shallow for a grown man who was in very good physical shape to drown in, regardless of his consumption of alcohol, and he wasn't even that drunk. There were just too many circumstances surrounding the accident that made the case very suspicious. And as you might remember from part one, Aki Pasela got very ill when he and Johanna went to Egypt shortly after they got married. Aki told his ex-wife that he thought that Johanna had tried to poison him with something. He also told his ex-wife that he was afraid of Johanna, that she sometimes was cold, and he believed that she could actually harm him. Anyway, at first, the insurance company weren't able to convince the police to reopen the investigation into Aki Pasela's death. The police considered it to be an accidental drowning. But when Johanna's father was killed, the police finally decided to reopen the investigation into Aki's death. And the insurance company provided the police with all the material they had gathered. The police informed Johanna that she was now also suspected of murdering her husband about a year prior to the attack on her parents. On October 25th, that same fall, A court order was issued to have Aki's body excavated and re-examined by the medical examiner. Another autopsy was performed, and they looked particularly at the presence of diatoms in the water in Aki's lungs. Diatoms are a type of algae found in the oceans, waterways, and soils of the world. The water of the Lake Yelmaran just like all bodies of water, have a large presence of diatoms. Thousands, or at least hundreds, per liter. But the water in Aki's lungs 
turned out to only show three diatoms, which clearly indicates that he was drowned in a body of water that was not the lake. More likely, he was drowned in a bathtub and brought to the lake already dead. But I should say that this is questioned by some experts. The police also interrogated Johanna's family regarding their involvement with Johanna and Aki. And both Jonas, her oldest son, and her son-in-law, Jafar Jafari, and Sofia, her oldest daughter, testified to having been asked to kill Aki in the years before he died. The methods Johanna had suggested varied between the three of them, but the outcome was always the same. She wanted Aki dead. While the police were focusing on the alleged murder of Johanna's ex-husband, Muhammad kept to his story about Ali, the unknown mysterious man who had told him to kill Johanna's parents. He stuck with the story for two months, but then on December 29th, he asked his lawyer to make a statement to the police, and this was what it said. Me, Mohammed Rayabi, born January 8, 1996, admit to the murder of Göran Möller and the attempted murder of Anki Möller. I am telling you now, I did this together with Johanna Möller. No one else but me and Johanna were involved. The reason for his confession is said to be that Johanna tried to pin the murder on her own kids, and Muhammad wouldn't have any of that. And that's why he decided to tell the truth. When Muhammad had confessed and told the investigators everything, the case was basically solved. They went to trial about a year later, and I've heard some of the recordings from the trial, and Johanna is one piece of work. She cannot answer a single question with a straight answer. She keeps bringing up irrelevant details and makes no sense at all. She gets caught in her own lies several times. Let me give you some examples. At one time, the prosecutor is questioning Johanna during the trial about her parents' habits when they were at the cabin. Nothing strange comes up. But Johanna mentions that both her parents are drinking heavily. Then they get into how Johanna's father was doing health-wise before his death. Johanna says that his health has been getting worse during the last years. She also says that her father met another woman when he was 49 years old and wanted to leave his wife and start a new life with this other woman. Johanna states that she has never seen her father so happy as he was during this time. And she supported his decision to leave her mom and start a new life. But Johanna's mother threatened to kill herself if he left her. So he decided to stay with his wife. Johanna says that this was the start of her father's very slow suicide. 
She says he lost his will to live after the affair and stopped taking care of himself. He started drinking heavily and his health got worse all the time. Johanna also claims that her father was suffering from alcoholic-induced dementia, but this is nothing that is confirmed by anyone else. When asked about how she feels about her mother now, Johanna starts to sob and says that she will always love her mother. But during the police questionings, she said that she hated her mother and that she wished she was dead. Johanna won't really admit to having said that she hated her mother, but she did. The prosecutor then brings up another statement that Johanna made to the police regarding her mother. She said, I hope she dies. I hope she kills herself. When the prosecutor asks her why she said that, Johanna starts sobbing again and starts to talk about how she, during her time in custody, has come to remember things from her childhood. Things like the abuse her mother subjected her to. But she doesn't go into that any more than that. The prosecutor brings up more comments from Johanna about how she wants her mother dead and how much she hates her. Johanna also said during the police investigations how she thought her mother was happy now when her father was dead. She was so tired of him and all his medical problems. Every time they went to the emergency room, my mother just wanted to leave instead of supporting my father, Johanna said. Johanna continues by telling the prosecutor how it's much easier to reject someone than to be rejected by someone. That is why she said those things about her mother. Johanna continues to say how she is mad at her mother for not defending her father against the attacker that night. Johanna's mother told the police that the man who attacked them was quite small. And since he was small, Johanna's thought is that her mother should have been able to save her father from the attacker. Wait a second here. Two people are lying in bed sleeping and a man comes into their bedroom with a knife and starts to stab them. In my mind, it doesn't really matter if the man is small or big. He is the one with the knife, and the one in power of the situation. If someone attacks a person who is lying down, it's almost impossible for that person to defend themselves. Anyway, while saying this, Johanna is sobbing more and more, and the female prosecutor seems to ignore the fact that Johanna is crying. And to be honest, from what I've heard from the trial, Johanna starts crying as soon as the questioning gets too hard. Like when she doesn't have any way to get herself out of her lies, she starts crying. And when not getting any affection or reaction from the prosecutor, and the prosecutor instead says, well, Johanna, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your health and well-being. Johanna interrupts her and says, You are the most evil human being I have ever met, to the prosecutor. The prosecutor says, What? What did you say? 
but Johanna doesn't repeat herself. And the questioning continues without anyone commenting on it further. I believe this is the first time in my life that I've heard an accused talking to a prosecutor in this way. Another time during the trial, the questions are regarding Johanna's whereabouts during the night of the murders, August 3rd, 2016. The prosecutor asks Johanna to describe what she was doing that night, and Johanna says that she had promised to drive Mohammed to a town called Katrineholm, about an hour away from Eskilstuna. And her 13-year-old son, Peter, had promised to watch the twins for her. But since Mohammed didn't get home until 8 p.m., she decided it was too late to drive him that night. But she does leave home anyway that night. And according to her, she left to go to the grocery store. But she doesn't tell her son, Peter, that the plans are changed. She tells him that she is going to the city of Katrineholm when she leaves the apartment. The prosecutor then asks her why she didn't just tell her son that she was just going to the store instead of lying to him. Johanna replies that she didn't want to tell him that she was just going to the store because then he would have wanted to tag along. Why would he want that? the prosecutor asks. Because he wants to spend alone time with me in the car, Johanna replies. The prosecutor then asks Johanna why he would want to tag along to the store, but not to Katrine Holm if he loved alone time with her so much. Johanna then says that he couldn't tag along to Katrine Holm because he was watching the twins. The prosecutor then points out to Johanna that he couldn't tag along to the story either because he was watching the kids. And she asks her again why she would lie to him about where she was going. To this, Johanna has no answer. This is about what the whole trial looks like. Johanna is changing her stories again and again. She has given the police nine different versions of what she was actually doing on the night of the murder. At first, she said she was at home. Then she said she was driving Mohammed to Katrineholm and that he wanted her to stop at a place where he was going to buy drugs. Then she changed to the most absurd version and that was that she was working as a call girl and slept with three different men that night. The final version that she ended up with was that she drove to a grocery store called Villis, but it was closed. She then drove to another Villis grocery store, but that store was also closed. She then drove to a store called Ika Maxi and got everything she needed, but when she was about to pay, she realized that she didn't have her credit card. So she left all her groceries at the store and left. An alibi that the police were not able to verify at all. If she had told them this story right away, the police would probably have been able to get the surveillance tape from the last door to make sure that she was really there. When she is asked why she keeps changing her mind about what she did that day, 
She keeps referring to psychological behaviors that can occur when a person is under a lot of pressure. According to Johanna, a person can try to create a false alibi even though they weren't involved in a crime at all. And that is the reason why she told all the lies. Another interesting thing that comes up is that it seems like Johanna tried to get her oldest daughter, Emma, and her boyfriend to help either scare or kill the father of the twins, Aki Pasela. Johanna's daughter is questioned in court, and during the court proceedings, she keeps saying no comments to almost everything. But the attorneys bring up her questionings, and that she stated that her mother, Johanna, asked her to help her scare and maybe hurt Aki, because Aki hit Johanna. She also asked them if they would help her kill Aki. But that was nothing they would even consider, according to Emma. And another thing Johanna went around telling anyone was that Aki hit her and was mentally abusive to her. And this is nothing that anyone else have ever seen. They just heard Johanna say it. According to Aki's friends and family, Aki was afraid of Johanna. I could go on and on about Johanna and all her lies. She talks so much all the time, but she cannot keep track of all her lies. It's almost comical sometimes when you listen to her during the trial. At one time during questioning, she wanted to read letters out loud that her kids had sent to her while she was in custody. But the prosecutor and the judge said that this was not the time or the place for that. And she had a hard time accepting that. The reason Johanna had for wanting to read the letters was that she wanted to prove to the court how fragile her son Peter was. He was only 13 years old during the trial. And she didn't want them to put him on the stand to, as she said, testify against his mother. But she was the one who made him her alibi. He was at home the night her parents got attacked and he took care of the twins. Johanna had several missed calls from him that night and several texts. But still, she claims that she was home that night. And her son testified to her not being at home. I would think it's a heavier load to put on a kid to make them lie to the police than to make them testify the truth in the trial. Anyway, on Friday, February 27, 2017, almost seven months after the attack, Johanna was sentenced to life imprisonment for accessory to murder on her father, conspiracy to murder instigation to murder on her mother, and also unlawful threat against several people. She was also sentenced for planning the murder of her ex-husband, Aki Pasela. Muhammad, who was only 20 years old at the time of the murder, 
got 14 years in prison for murder and attempted murder. After the appeals, the sentencing was still the same. The only thing that was removed from Johanna's sentence was the planning of the murder of her ex-husband. That crime was removed from her sentence because the higher court didn't think it was proved without reasonable doubt. Both Johanna and Mohammed underwent a psychological evaluation and they were both deemed to be fit for prison. The report stated that Johanna has dysfunctional personality traits, yet she is very resourceful and dominant. Mohammed will be forced to leave Sweden as soon as he served out his sentence, and Johanna will probably be in prison for a long time to come. Right now, she's in a woman's prison in the southern parts of Sweden, in a town called Ysta. In November of 2018, Johanna allegedly tried to convince another inmate that was getting out soon to kill Johanna's mother Anki for her. The other inmate would get about a hundred thousand US dollars for doing this. The case against Johanna was dropped due to lack of evidence. Johanna's mother has stated in the media that she only has one daughter left now, and that is Johanna's older sister. Johanna's mother, Anki, wants nothing to do with Johanna. Despite of this, Johanna had tried to contact her mother several times by writing her letters and sending messages with people. Now, Johanna's mother has filed a restraining order against Johanna which means that Johanna is no longer allowed to try to contact her mother. Johanna has also filed complaints against the prison because she can only see her grown children under supervision by the prison staff, and they are not allowed to hug or even touch each other. And Johanna thinks that is unfair. There has been a lot of speculation in the media about Johanna and her personality. Most experts seem to believe that she is a sociopath and that she is still dangerous to other people. She will be in prison for a lot of years to come. Let's just hope that keeping her locked up also means that she is not able to convince anyone to commit any crimes on her behalf. Her mother Anki probably still has a threat against her life. What that family went through after the attack was horrible. Anki and Johanna's sister and her family had to hide until Johanna was finally arrested. Johanna's sister have two kids, 12 and 14 years old at the time, and they couldn't tell anyone where they were because of the threat against their lives. That must have been a terrible experience. And Johanna's mother and father always helped Johanna throughout her life. They gave her money when she needed it. And Johanna's mother, Anki, wrote down every time they gave Johanna money. She thought of it as an advance on her inheritance. Anki explains in court that she wants both her daughters to get the same amount of money. But when Johanna needed help, they helped her. But they kept track on the amount so that it wouldn't be unfair against Johanna's sister. 
but when Johanna was going to sell the apartment that she lived in, that her father owned 95% of, she was planning to keep all the money. And that's when Johanna's dad finally realized what his daughter was up to. And this, according to Johanna's mother Anki, was the whole reason for Johanna's hatred against her parents. But Johanna still claims that she had nothing to do with the attack on her parents. It was all Muhammad's doing. I don't know if anyone really believes that story but herself. I've changed the names of Johanna's children in this podcast to protect them. Thank you so much for listening to episode 37 of True Crime Sweden. You can reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And after this sad story, it's time to get over to something else. It's time for the fun fact about Sweden. And I got inspired by a post by one of my listeners, Lisa Marie, who in the True Crime Sweden discussion group posted a clip of Alexander Skarsgård talking about Swedish slang. You can find it on YouTube by searching Alexander Skarsgård teaches you Swedish slang. It is a Vanity Fair YouTube clip. It was so funny, so check it out. I guess you all know who Alexander Skarsgård is. He is the Swedish actor who won an Emmy for Big Little Lies. Anyway, after watching that clip, I continued to watch even more clips with him. You know how it is. You get stuck on YouTube for an hour or two. And I found this clip when he is on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He talked about something called Jantelagen. And I think that would be a good topic for today's fun fact. Jantelagen, or the Jantelag, is of course not a real law, but it's more like a way of living, a constant state of mind in the Swedish people. Alexander Skarsgård talks about how he had a hard time handling people who wanted to congratulate him after he won the Emmy, because he didn't know how to respond. The Jante Law is all about you not thinking that you are special in any way. If you did something great, you should be all, oh no, there was nothing about it. A Swedish person is not a person who says, I'm great, I'm super good at doing this or doing that. We are humble and make sure that no one thinks that we are better than anyone else. This is not only a good thing, believe me. People should be able to be proud of what they have accomplished. But Swedes are not really capable of that. It's just the way we were brought up. But how did this Jante law find its way into people's minds? It started with a book called A Refugee Crosses His Path, written in 1933 by the author Axel Sandemose. 
He wrote the book in Norwegian, but he was originally from Denmark. And Jante is a small town in his books. The Jante law says, 1. You shall not think that you are something. 2. You shall not think that you are as good as us. 3. You shall not think that you are smarter than us. 4. You shall not imagine that you are better than us. 5. You shall not believe that you know more than us. 6. You shall not believe that you are superior to us. 7. You shall not think you are good enough for anything. 8. You shall not laugh at us. 9. You shall not think that someone cares about you. 10. You shall not think that you can teach us anything. This is really depressing. But in the book, there is also an eleventh commandment that is usually called the Jante Punishment Law, and it goes like this. Eleven, don't you think we know something about you? Reading this makes me kind of sad. Is this really the rules we live by, almost ninety years after a guy wrote a stupid book? But it is a mindset that people in Sweden struggle with every day. Swedes don't really know what to do with themselves when being praised for something. If you tell a Swede that they have a nice shirt on, you're probably gonna get the answer, Oh, this old thing, or Oh, it was on sale, or something. Not, you will never get like, Thank you, I love this shirt. But if you ever come to Sweden and tell a Swede how amazing they are, you can watch how they almost crawl out of their own skin because they are so uncomfortable. Look at, for example, the founder of IKEA, Ingvar Kamprad. Despite the fact that he had all the money a person could ask for, he drove his old Volvo 244 until it fell apart on him. He never flew business class. He took the bus if he needed to go somewhere. Remember the fourth commandment. You shall not imagine that you are better than us. Well, he lived by that. And with that, I think we're done for today. And I will try to be proud of the podcast I'm creating, despite of the Jante law. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hey,